Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where we quickly get overwhelmed by Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 22, which begins with marauders swarming the crashed buggy, and it ends with two raiders tearing the clothing from one of the scouts. Yeah, overwhelmed is right. That's the perfect description for this minute. Yeah, this minute and the two that follow it. Yes. It are not great. No. Nope, they are not great. And I just have so many thoughts running through my head, and I almost don't know what to say. Yeah, these next three days are going to be very similar to when we were watching Mad Max 79 and talking about the ordeal that the couple in the Chevy have to go through. Yes. When Toe Cutter's gang sees this decked out Chevy trying to escape the town that they're currently having fun in, they decide, well, now we're going to shift our fun. We're going to chase down this Chevy. We're going to wreck it. We're going to tear the people out from inside of it, and we're going to brutalize them. And it was very apparent from the context of that scene that these biker gang members were going to assault and rape these people. And there's going to be a lot of talk about that. So content warning, I guess. In the first Mad Max movie, we're spared a lot of the more grotesque parts of that assault because it cuts away. There's a bird involved. Go watch the movie if you're curious about that. But they cut away from it, and then we show up in the aftermath. That's not the case here. No, we see the whole thing. Yeah. So it starts off. The buggy, that is the fourth scouting group, has left the compound yesterday. They've made it out to the road. They were quickly overtaken by the motorcycles flipped and disabled and so you've got the driver of the buggy they pop the top off the buggy and they hop right out they are on the move getting out of there as fast as they can but there's like three or four big biker dudes that are trying to grab her and she wrestles away at one point and starts running but she's quickly captured again and then that's when it just gets hard to watch because there are these large, burly biker dudes and they are just tearing this woman apart. Yes, they tear her shirt open and by the end of this minute, we're to the point where they're tearing her pants off. Yeah. And that's as far as we get in this particular minute. And other things happen in this minute, but I wish that I had some sort of insight or something wise to say about the depiction of sexual assault in movies. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I just... I just find it disturbing, and and I wonder why it's necessary, and I wonder why people do it. Yeah. I mean, it's just like in the real world. I can't fathom the mindset of people who rape other people, and I can't fathom the mindset of George Miller, why he does this in the movie, Yeah. and I- in the last movie, too. I feel like the subject of sexual assault is included in films as a way to give the villains a condemnable quality about them. And the raider that does the assaulting, he does get a pretty quick comeuppance. But I don't think we necessarily need a sexual assault to color our opinion of this group of raiders. We already know 
that they're bad because they wear dark clothing and they go around and they terrorize and they kick up dusk and they hoop and they holler. It's like they're coded that way. Yeah, in, we, we already in the know subtext evil. of the story. And they are going to continue to do things that are deplorable. I mean, for one thing, the passenger in the buggy, they tear him out of the car and they hold him up against a tire and they shoot arrows into him using their little wrist mounted crossbows. Yeah. The other scout groups that they catch up to, we're going to see what happens to them right around minute 30, I believe. But those people are either dead, tied up, brutalized, butchered. You don't necessarily need that extra seasoning, so to speak, mm -hmm. thrown in there. And it's one of those things where it's uncomfortable to watch and it should be uncomfortable to watch. And maybe it's in there just to remind us that it's a thing. But at the same time, even that just doesn't seem right. I do suppose, especially I think students of film will say and students of society will say that there is value in depicting the worst humanity has to offer so that we see what it looks like and we see what evil looks like so yeah. that we know how to see it in the real world. I'm not like, really sure. It? Yeah, like this is how you identify bad things. This is a bad thing. And it spurs max to action in the next few minutes into a vengeful action that we haven't seen since the first movie. Mm. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about Max's actions. I think it's Thursday's minute. Yeah. When we get to it, I want to definitely want to talk about that in relation to the first movie. So we'll definitely, put a bookmark yeah. in that. Yep, put a pin in that. And save it. There are other things that happen in this minute. Yes, there are. Lighter things. Things yeah. with a little bit of humor that's yeah. a weird juxtaposition with there's a rape going on right below and humorous things are happening it's it's weird it's one of those things i think where the situation is really hard to deal with and so if there's a tiniest bit of levity to help <laughs> ease the tension ease the tension that people will grab onto it for instance max is up on the ridge and he starts off this minute with his binoculars we see the outline of the binoculars in the first shot of this minute the first second and a half or so and the gyro captain is standing behind max and he reaches into his coat and he pulls out this collapsible telescope like a spyglass i think is what they're called and i tried to find a little bit of extra information about spyglasses and how they were used nautically and what kind of people would have them and google was really insistent every time i tried to look them up on telling me all about astronomical telescopes and how great they are and look at all these giant telescopes and mm -hmm. let's talk about you know calpurnius and all this other stuff and i'm like i just want to hear about spyglasses and i ended up going to piratefashions.com of all places <laughs> And they gave me just the most bare bones explanation. They say telescopes were originally called spyglasses when used for a military application, as opposed to astronomy purposes. They became popular after Galileo published his findings on the use of the telescope in March of 1610. Telescopes were constructed by placing a weak concave glass at one end and a strong convex glass at the other end. All Navy spyglasses were made of brass to avoid rust. And that's all I got. Okay. Well, the one one that the gyro captain has does look like brass. Yep. So it probably is a relic of the military that he has oh, picked up somewhere along yeah. the way. It kind of justifies me calling him a sky pirate the other day. Yes, it does. <laughs> 
But he pulls out this telescope and he extends it what seems like a full meter. Yeah, I think maybe more. It's hard to tell from that perspective, but he just... It's comical in the way it just keeps expanding because he like swings it around. And it extends from his face out over above Max. And Max is sitting there with his binoculars and he kind of drops them down a bit and he looks up and there's this gigantic telescope above his head. And so he grabs the telescope from the sky captain and hands him his binoculars and they do like a little (laughs) weird trade thing. Yeah. And so for the rest of the next couple of minutes, whenever we see that telescope with just a single circle that's going to be max's point of view and when we see the binoculars with the two circles that's going to be the gyro captain's point of view until the very end when max gives the gyro captain back the telescope and now the single circle is again the gyro captain's point of view right and that switching back and forth did confuse me. I think it's in minute 23. I had to go like frame by frame because they were switching back and forth with the POVs. Yeah. That it got a little bit confusing. Because like, each one who of was them, looking at what? They look at different things. They do. And it's important to remember who is looking at what. Yes. Because their focuses and their attention, they're very different. Yes. What they're willing to focus on. The gyro captain is very interested in the woman. In fact, I think that's why he pulled out his telescope in the first place. was like, oh, that woman, she's running away and she's being attacked. I want to pay attention to this. I'm going to pull out my telescope. I would like to think that the gyro captain was interested in looking at the woman because if she was able to escape i think he would have wanted to like try and ride in and save her try and do the the white knight thing sort of forgetting at the time that he's all shackled up i don't want to think that he's just watching her because he wants a peep show no no not at all and in fact this is in my notes for the very end of this particular scene that his watching her is not voyeuristic at all. I think, let me see the way I word it, let me. But he's he's watching as a concerned onlooker that can't do anything to help. Yeah. He can't do anything but watch, so he watches. And throughout the encounter, he's shocked and saddened and disheartened, and he goes through a wide range of emotions. And we do spend some time getting an update on what's happening Yeah, through his facial expressions. Definitely. He's very good at it. One thing, speaking of being good at things, and I guess being the antithesis of being good at things, we're hit with another situation where I guess female characters just don't get names. Oh, I tried so hard not to be mad about it in Mad Max 79. Yeah. About female characters not being named. This role is labeled as victim. So when you get to the end of the movie, when you get to the credits and you're seeing all these names, you're going to see victim played by Kathleen McKay. I just, it infuriates me that you rape and murder this woman and she doesn't even get a name. Okay, later on next week, once Max gets to the compound, there is going to be a character that inquires after this woman. That would have been the perfect yeah. time to give her a name. Right. Just It ask, would have been so easy. Hey, what happened to Helen? Yeah. Sorry, Helen's dead. It would have been so simple. And I know, yeah. oh, big production, so hard. Honestly, with how many people were on that set, point to a grip and be like, hey, Bruce, give us a name of a female. And he would have said, uh. Uh, Jenny. All right. Kathleen, your character's name is Jenny. Yeah. That would have been so simple. And 
I, mm, it it yeah. sticks in my craw. <laughs> it's one of those things that legitimately bothers me when characters like this don't have names. Yes, she's a small character. No, she doesn't have dialogue. But at the same time, you cared about the actress enough to put her name in the credits. There are extras in the compound that we're going to see that don't have names, that don't have credits. We don't know who the actors are because they just don't appear in the credits. Yeah. You know, this woman, Kathleen McKay, that's a lot of physicality in that role. Right. And I just... Like, she had to run, she had to climb, she had to get carried around by people. She had to show off her body. She had to lay on the ground naked. Yeah. Like, that's a lot for an actress to do. Yeah. She had to lay there with this gigantic, sweaty, dirty man literally laying on top of her. Yeah. Pretending to rape her. Yeah. Like, give the character a name, George. Come on. So... Kathleen McKay actually did not do all of that much as an actress. There are two movies on her IMDb page, 1978's Chameleon, where she plays woman, and 1981's Road Warrior, which, you know, we see her performance here. I really couldn't find much of anything. So I imagine she probably took a couple of parts in late 70s, early 80s, and then said, all right, I did the acting thing. Right. It paid for... Yeah, maybe she just needed some extra money, so she took a couple parts. Sometimes acting is just a job. Right. She was going to school and just needed a few extra bucks. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm still miffed that the character doesn't have a name, though. It's such a simple thing to give a character a name. Yeah. But, you know. So, Max doesn't really... He... Okay. (laughs) I was going to say that he doesn't really care about Kathleen. I'm naming her. Her name is Kathleen. Okay. He doesn't really care about Kathleen, but he's not like ignoring her on purpose. Like he checks in with her every once in a while. But he's... I think categorizing his relationship with Wes as obsessed is maybe a little bit extreme. I think but in I've, this moment, yeah, and I, I don't mean to cut you off, no, but fine. I kind of interpreted his focusing on Wes as him focusing on, okay, who are the danger elements in this scenario? Yes, and Wes is obviously the leader. Like, that's kind of his cop training kicking in. Okay, yes. identify the greatest threat in this group. But there's also the fact that this is now the third in instance of him seeing Wes at a distance, mm-hmm. first being by the trailer, second being as they were at the top of the ridge, and now on the other side of the ridge, he sees Wes a third time. Yeah. They're starting to like form some kind of unspoken relationship, which seems like a theme in this movie. Unspoken bonds, unspoken communication. Yeah. But it, it does seem like, at least on Max's end, there just seems to be repeated encounters. Like, Wes is just a bad penny that keeps popping up. Yes, a bad penny. Yeah. That's perfect. So he's watching Wes. Max checks in on the woman being attacked, and then he jumps over to Wes, who is... He's he's loading his wrist crossbow. Does it have a special name? No, I think it's just a wrist-mounted crossbow. Okay. And he's looking at the golden youth and the golden youth is looking at him Uh and does it seem did you pick up on some sort of look going between them well some sort of again silent communication i didn't see anything really coming from the golden youth because i'm pretty sure they told the golden youth hey just sit there and don't emote you know if you want to get paid today don't emote (laughs) just sit there you have one job but i feel like don't fall off the bike and don't emote that's two jobs i feel (laughs) 
<laughs> I feel like Wes looking at the golden youth as he's about to shoot this guy is just it's another thing where Wes gets off on power and violence where he's looking at the golden youth and thinking I'm about to shoot someone I'm excited by this you know golden youth aren't you excited by this and golden youth is like I do not feel strongly one way or another like the golden youth is like straight off of planet neutral yes but yeah, Wes kind of takes his crossbow, he looks at the Golden Youth, and then he turns around and he points his little crossbow at this other scout that they've torn out of the buggy. And, you know, there's a couple of marauders and they're holding they're, this guy by his shoulders. Yeah, they're like and, holding his shoulders back, like opening up his chest. And they shoot, they're shooting arrows into him to pin him to this tire that he's sitting up against. Yeah, those, I mean, we've gotten a pretty good look at those bolts. They're not, not that, that long. long. Not that long. I mean, I know some people, you know, aren't that thick, but this guy didn't look scrawny. He looked like he has, you know, a decent amount of like meat on his shoulders. Yeah. And, you know, a decent, you know, a good sized chest for it to get through. Although. I don't know. The arrow that we see go into him. Is this the first arrow that goes into his right side or is it the second arrow that goes into his left side? I can't remember. Okay. I'm, okay, I'm putting myself against the tire. The first arrow goes into the right shoulder. Okay. The left one is the one, I believe, that pins him to the tire. Yeah, because the left one could have been from a larger crossbow. You know, it must have been, because those those bolts, I mean, maybe 10 they're inches. They're short enough that they didn't actually go all the way through Wes's arm. Right. Although the one that went into Wes's arm, yes, it was the same bolt, but it was shot by a different weapon. Yeah. So Wes's wrist crossbow must be very powerful mm. to shoot into the scout's shoulder and get deep enough. Because it goes all the way to the, uh, to the fletching. T- yeah, it does. But you're right. The other one that actually pins him to the wo- tire must have been from a big, like, handheld, like, double arm holding crossbow. Right. Yeah. Because they succeeded in pinning him to the tire. So this scout, his name is Nathan. Yes. And we know his name because next Monday we're going to hear another character shouting, Nathan, Nathan, it's Nathan. And so (laughs) we know this is Nathan. And he is played by the ever effervescent and bright and cheery David Downer. (laughs) I say this minute is a downer. Anytime you have to witness sexual assault, that is disheartening. Nothing nothing ruins your faith in humanity than watching another human being sexually brutalize someone else. Yeah. But getting back to the actor, he actually has had a pretty good career. He started acting in 1968. I'm pretty sure he's still active today because in his top four, one of those roles is from a TV show that started running in 1996, and I think he was on most recently in 2009, so a good eight years ago. Mm. His number one most recognizable in his top four is Road Warrior, obviously, because everybody loves Road Warrior. Number two in that list of four is Home and Away, which is the TV show I mentioned, uh, him being on familiar. multiple episodes. He was in a total of 54 episodes between 1996 and, and 2009. Away. Was that an Australian show or was it an, an American show? I did not look into it. I'm going to look um, it up. Number three on his top four is Norman Loves Rose from 1982, where he played Michael. And number four, last but not least, is The Killing of Angel Street in 1981, where he played Alan. So David Downer is largely a television actor. He has 
notable appearances. Uh, he was on two episodes of Farscape in 2003. He was in two episodes of Water Rats between 1996 and 1998, uh, which is the cop drama detective show that Steve Bisley was in. Oh, okay. He was also in one episode of a show that I only mentioned because it has an interesting title. I didn't look up anything else about it, but the show is called My Partner the Ghost, which I can only assume is a cop show about a detective with a ghost partner. What's that show with the dog? <laughs> Tequila Be- and Benetti. Tequila and Benetti. There's like a whole... <sighs> They could make a whole channel that just has movies and shows about cops with non-human partners. Or just like strange pairings. Yes. They could show Lethal Weapon on repeat and then like throw in the Rush Hour movies. And And Turner and Hooch. Yeah. (laughs) Just weird pairings. But getting back to the awful brutality of this scene. (laughs) We laugh. Because we can't escape it. We laugh because we have to dispel the tension. Yeah. I find it interesting in situations like this that both of these scouts are having violence done to them. However, one is being sexually assaulted, one is just being physically tortured, and I'm not sure what the right direction to go in is. And this is going back to the first movie, Mad Max 1979, because as Max and Goose are going to investigate the call, the first person they run across is is a character named Lair. He was the driver of the Chevy. Yes. He and his girlfriend were attacked and assaulted. He's running through a field without any pants on. Yeah. Running for his life. And so you get the idea that both he and his girlfriend were similarly assaulted. Yes. That's not the case here. No, and I I hate to think better of that instance of rape because I never want to think better at all of one instance of rape over another instance of rape, but at least the one in Mad Max 79 was equal. The gang brutalized both of them, male and female. Mm -hmm. Although I do have to say that the police didn't take the male rape seriously. No. You see... Okay. (laughs) You see a man running scared, naked through a field. What do you think happened to him? And you yell out over the intercom, hey, turkey, you're a turkey. Like, that's, no. That's not how you treat someone that obviously has been sexually assaulted. But then Goose, same person, when he comes across the girlfriend who doesn't get a name, he is very gentle with her. And... He takes very specific care of her. Yeah, I still have issues with that whole situation. Yes. The way Jim Goose handled it, it was not very sympathetic to to Lair and Lair's situation. No. But I almost would have been more comfortable with this scene in this movie if the Raiders had just beaten up the two scouts. If they had given them very similar treatments. Yes. And... Again, it sounds weird to say it, but I would have been okay with both of them, like, being tortured. Because it's equal opportunity brutalization. Yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah, it's hard to explain it. I know that George Miller wanted to express how bad these people are and how far society has fallen. But in a non-fallen society that we have now, these same things happen. Yeah, you don't necessarily need to restrict yourself to communities and situations where everything is scarce like this. I mean, he could be trying to point out the fact that everything is hard to come by, including sex. But the assault that happens here, there's nothing really 
sexual about it. It's just very animalistic, and I think that's really well illustrated tomorrow. So I'll yeah, talk about it. We gotta leave something then. to talk about tomorrow, because it continues. But yeah, there's nothing sexy about this assault. No. Have you looked through the screenplay about what it says about this scene? Yes. Yes, I did. And I wasn't sure if I was going to bring it up. But since you asked, I'm going to bring it up. Yeah. The screenplay doesn't say anything about rape. Really? It doesn't say anything about sexual assault or assault or torture or anything like that. It mentions at Wes's signal, they start to tear the woman's clothes away. And then it says... The lens finds the remaining Mohawker now standing back from the prostrate girl. He is loading his crossbow. And then a few lines later, it says, We track low past the dead girl's face towards the back of the Mohawker. He is sitting on a wheel, pulling on his trousers. Okay, so... That's it. So it does kind of... It intimates that it happened. And I think that makes me angrier that George Miller didn't put in his screenplay that she was raped. That it was more explicitly laid out right like i know things change between the screenplay and what goes on screen right obviously because this is not the shooting a lot and he would write every night and come to set in the morning with new direction right but i can't help be a little insulted i guess that he was willing to put something on screen that he was not willing to put on paper like writing it down in such explicit terms is a part of owning that you made those decisions. Mm. George Miller made that decision to show rape on screen in such a brutal way, and he didn't write it down. He didn't take ownership of it, and that bothers me. Okay, I see what you're saying there. Yeah. I think I'm better following now than I was before. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm having a hard time putting it into words, but I think ownership is really what I'm looking for. Yes, he, you know, he put his name on the movie. He owns this movie. He's taking ownership of this movie, but showing us what is happening is not the same as... Putting you know, it down on paper. Putting it down on paper. Looking in at that paper. Explicit terms. And... This is what I mean. When I show you that they're ripping her clothes away, this is what I mean is happening. Okay. They are getting ready to rape her. And that's, they glo- completely gloss over that in okay. the screenplay. Yeah. And I think it's weak. I fault George Miller for that. And it disappoints me because he made such fantastic movies. But in this instance, the fact that he didn't own it and didn't clarify what he was putting on screen yeah didn't name it i understand your frustration yeah i'm also apprehensive to lay that at george miller's feet because the screenplay that we're working from came from the internet screenplay database right we don't know i don't know we we don't know anything about this screenplay (laughs) i'm very dubious about my sources when it comes to things that I reference. And yeah, I found that screenplay and I printed it out and I had it bounded up so that we could reference it. Yes. But at the same time, I'm apprehensive to look at it and be like, oh yes, this is exactly what was produced. Because... Like I mentioned before, George Miller would go home at the end of the day, draw up new storyboards, new mm-hmm. scripts, yep, everything absolutely. for everyone. And I imagine that the day before or the days before they went to shoot this. Maybe they wanted something more powerful. I have to wonder what was going on between him and Byron Kennedy and Dean Semler, the cinematographer. I got to wonder what was going on between all of these different elements of production and what their conversations were like because I feel like that 
would help color our understanding mm-hmm. of this scene more so than just something that I found on a database somewhere. Yes. And I feel like that would be an interesting conversation to have with George Miller, to talk to him about his depictions of sexual assault and rape in his movies and what he thinks about those. I guess we'll have to keep that in mind if we ever get into a situation where we can talk to George Miller. Yeah. <laughs> maybe in maybe my... someday the podcast will get enough credibility <laughs> that we can... Nail him down for something. In my current mental state of being upset and discouraged with George Miller, I can't help but think he's just going to answer like an old white man who has absolutely no clue what he's doing when it comes to women. Yeah. Not personally, filmmaking wise. But that's just me right now because I'm all riled up. Well, I've got nothing left in my notes for today. Do you Um, have anything left? I think, yeah, that was was it for me. So that brings us to the end of Minute 22. Mm -hmm. It's... It's minutes like these that I find the most difficult to deal with. We're going to have scenes of horrible physical brutality. There are people that are going to be set on fire while still alive. There are going to be people strapped to the fronts of vehicles and hanging off of the sides of vehicles. But whenever the subject of sexual assault and rape comes up, I find it really hard to stomach. Right. It's a different category of brutalization. Yeah. It's a physical invasion of someone. And it's awful is the only word I can think of. And I don't think it's strong enough. No. We're going to be dealing with this for the next two days. So as I come back tomorrow, we've got more of this scene to slog through. Yep. You can take comfort in the fact that by the end of this week, at least we'll be that much closer to the compound and we can get on to other subjects at hand. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 22 of the Road Warrior. We will see you tomorrow.